Google is bringing their privacy sandbox to Android. Meta is settling a nearly 10-year-old lawsuit. States are abusing facial recognition and DNA data, and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report number 76, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report will recap some of the most important events from the last week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry is away this week, and by the way, he said last week that he would be, so he absolutely beat all of you to the Henry is never here comments. This week's affiliate link is Orange Website Hosting. Remember, these are affiliate links. These are not sponsors. We pick these by ourselves. We don't really have a system for picking affiliate links, but whenever possible, I like to pick links that are relevant to this week's stories. This week, we're gonna be talking a lot about a lot of privacy abuses, data abuses, and the best way to prevent those is to be in control of your data in the first place. So in a perfect world, that means hosting your data whenever possible, and Orange Website is one hosting service that we recommend. You can host your own Nextcloud servers, your own Matrix chats, your own Bitwarden. You can even just get a domain name and use it as a custom email address domain name. No matter what your level of technical competency, there are definitely things that you can do to take control of your data and have that in your hands. So again, these are not sponsors. These are affiliate links that we pick. And if you guys are interested in web hosting and you're on the market for some new ones, check out Orange website. And if you use our affiliate link, we will get a small kickback, which helps keep Surveillance Report going. With that, we're going to launch into our highlight story, and the story that really made the rounds this week was Google introducing the Privacy Sandbox for Android. Privacy Sandbox has already kind of been around. We've discussed this. It's related to the whole flock topics thing where Google is basically trying to do away with third-party cookies, and the way I interpret it is they're basically trying to make themselves a middleman in between you and the advertisers, so they get to keep sucking up all your data, but then the advertisers have to go through them to sell targeted ads, but ostensibly the goal is to make advertisers advertising more privacy respecting. Well, Google has announced that they are now going to take the privacy sandbox, which was previously limited only to the Chrome browser, and they are going to try to move it to the entire Android operating system. This is kind of a mirror of Apple's app tracking transparency on iOS, I believe, 14 or maybe 15 is where that first kicked in. So they're basically trying to continue to compete with Apple by applying this to the Android OS. This will allow users to limit data sharing with third-party apps and cross-app identifiers. And I'm gonna quote the article. We're also exploring technologies that reduce the potential for covert data collection, including safer ways for apps to integrate with advertising software developer kits, or SDKs, unquote. The blog post from Google takes a few pot shots at Apple, which I thought was interesting, claiming that they are, quote, ineffective and harmful for, quote, user privacy and developer business. They go on to say that existing ad platform features will be supported for at least two years, but it is already open to feedback from developers and they are expecting a beta release by the end of the year. That was the official blog post from Google. There were a lot of articles about this that came out. A lot of them had their own comments and kind of just rephrased the blog post, but I wanna focus specifically on Ars Technica's analysis of this because I think they had the most meaningful analysis and interesting commentary to say. According to Ars Technica, one way that Google appears to be attempting to implement the privacy sandbox is by implementing the SDK runtime, which is a software developer kit for ads that has less permissions than a traditional SDK. If this is how they programmed it, for example, it would not be able to just indiscriminately scoop up location data and what other apps are on your phone and stuff like that. The problem is this appears to be entirely optional. <laughs> 
So far, Google has not given any indicator that they're going to force developers to use this thing. And maybe that's because they're going to go in a different direction. But at the same time, the article from Ars Technica continues to point out, as do multiple other articles, that Google isn't actually committing to anything or saying anything with this blog post. There's no hard timelines. There's no concrete how we're going to pull this off. There's just kind of a bunch of fluff about we're going to bring the privacy sandbox and it's going to respect user privacy and it's not going to be disruptive and it'll show up at some point. But until then, we're going to continue supporting stuff. This really did kind of make headlines a lot. But right now, this is one of those things where we don't really know a lot. There's, again, a lot of talk. There's a lot of headlines, but there's no real commitment. There's no real hard timelines. There's no real concrete facts about how they're going to do this. So at this point, this could just be PR. I mean, probably not. It's Google. They're probably going to do something. But at this point, we don't know what it's going to look like or how effective it's going to be. At any rate, no doubt we will be hearing more about this in the future, and we will keep you updated as we do. With that, we will move into data breaches, and we will start with the Internet Society, who exposed 80,000 member login details. The Internet Society is a nonprofit that is, quote, dedicated to keeping the Internet open and secure, unquote. Over 80,000 members had their data exposed via a misconfigured, unprotected Azure Cloud repository. I think that counts. Go ahead and take your shot. Data exposed included full names, email and mailing addresses, and login details. Data was exposed for about one month. There was no indication that it was accessed, but as always, we recommend erring on the side of caution and assuming that it was. So defenses here, don't put your full name, put in a nickname or a fake name, use a masked email address from Simple Login, use a PO box if they have to have a mailing address. I don't know, maybe they were sending out like swag and stickers and stuff. I could understand that. And of course, use strong, unique passwords and usernames everywhere you can. Our next data breach comes from the Black Cat Ransomware Group, who has attacked Swissport. Swissport provides cargo handling, maintenance, cleaning, and lounge hospitality services across 310 airports in 50, 50, 50 countries. 1.6 terabytes of data, including full names, passport numbers, nationality, religion, Muslim or non-Muslim, email, phone number, job role, interview scores, and other recruitment information. It is unclear exactly how many people were affected. Again, we just have the size of the data leak. Swissport has 66,000 employees, and every year they handle the data for 282 million passengers and 4.8 million tons of cargo. It looks like, based on this information, that this was potential job candidates. So once again, we see a situation where your job is a potential risk. And unfortunately, companies are not really taking it seriously to secure this data. Don't lie to your employer, but I mean, some of the things I do, I use a shortened version of my real name until I actually get hired. I used a custom email address, custom domain. I use a voice over IP phone number, things like that. It's kind of hard to get a job and not give up some information, but look for ways you can do that. On a personal note, can someone tell me in the comments, is this whole Muslim versus non-Muslim thing normal in Europe? Because to me, that that's like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Like that kind of information in the US, I believe is protected by law. Is that normal in Europe? That just seems... Our next story came from the NFL, where the San Francisco 49ers were hit by the Black Bite ransomware attack. The 49ers are a very, very popular football team, American football team here in the US. At this point in time, the article really did not give any details. It's unclear how much data was stolen or exactly what data or how many people were affected or things like that. At this point, we'll just keep you guys updated if we hear anything. Our next story comes from Element Vape, which is a popular e-cigarette store in the US and Canada who was victim of a mage card attack. Element Vape sells e-cigarettes, 
vaping devices, e-liquids, and CBD products, both online and in person in the US and Canada. And again, this was a mage card attack, which means there was malicious JavaScript inserted on the website that skimmed credit card details during checkout. The article says that this attack started sometime after February 5th and appears to have been removed sometime around February 18th. The company did not release any kind of formal statements and has not commented on whether they're going to alert people or what. And unfortunately, this is not the company's first compromise. So again, the defense here, they have in-person stores. So I would say go to the store and buy stuff in cash. If that's not an option for whatever reason, look into things like privacy.com or my pseudo cards. I know on my website, The New Oil, I have a whole list of card providers, and if you know any other good, reputable ones, please let us know. Open a GitLab issue. Just find a way to protect your credit card info, man, because too many people are stealing it. And our last data breach story is a quick update from last month. The Red Cross is now saying that state hackers breached their network using a Zoho bug. Last month, we talked about how the Red Cross admitted to having the data of 515,000 people stolen. These people were part of the Restoring Family Links program, which helps to reunite families who were separated by disaster, like war or natural disasters or things like that. In a very public statement, they urged the criminals to have a heart and not share the data because there were so many vulnerable people caught up in this. It appears they were breached by a state actor who targeted an unpatched Zoho vulnerability. And I believe they said Zoho was like a password management solution or something. The access began November 9th, 2021. And this article speculates that the actors could have been working on behalf of China. Brian Krebs in his blog post speculates that it may actually be linked to Iran somehow. We're not sure at this time. We don't have any details. As always, the lesson here is to stay updated. Henry always harps on auto updates and I'm with him on that. Stay updated. It's really important. With that, we will move into the company section, and we're going to start off with that story from Meta. Meta is paying $90 million to settle a decade-old Facebook data privacy lawsuit. So this case was actually filed in 2012. The case centered on Facebook's use of proprietary browser plugins to track users' visit to third-party sites. Facebook obtained consent to track subscribers while logged in, but promised to stop the tracking once the subscriber logged out, which according to the class action lawsuit was not the case. The case went through multiple appeals, and part of the settlement is believed to be because the Supreme Court declined to hear the case, so they're kind of like at an impasse now. If this settlement is approved, this would be one of the 10th largest penalties ever paid in the US for violating privacy. As part of the settlement, Meta must delete all of the data that was collected via the plugin. Okay, here's a quick personal opinion. Quoting the article, in a 2020 opinion on the litigation, the Ninth Circuit held that the unlawful copying and monetization of personal data creates economic harm, even if the value of the data in plaintiff's hands does not diminish as a result. Lower federal courts had been split on the issue with some requiring a showing that the value of the data in question diminished, unquote. Why does this matter? Who cares? They lied, straight up lied. The privacy aspect doesn't even matter at this point. They lied in their terms of service. What's even the point of the terms of service? What's even the point of a contract? If I sign a contract with somebody and in the contract, I say, I will not come and slash your tires. And then I come and slash their tires. Who cares at that point what the cost of the tires were and whether I used a knife or a machete or like, who cares? They straight up lied in a legally binding contract. I don't even understand how this is a debate in the first place. Okay, getting off my soapbox and moving on. Our next story comes from Microsoft. Microsoft Defender will soon block Windows password theft. So I'm going to quote the article. One of the most common methods to steal Windows credentials is to gain admin privileges on a compromised device and then dump the memory of the local security authority server service, LSASS, process. 
unquote. Basically, this is a way to dump the password hashes so they can copy the hashes and then they can either brute force them or basically there's a way to use the hash as is. It goes way over my head, but I've heard a lot about it and I know it's a really common thing. Microsoft is now rolling out several new features to help mitigate this. The biggest one the article focused on is called Credential Guard, which isolates the LSASS process in a virtualized container that prevents the other processes from accessing it. This, of course, would cause issues because if the process is isolated, then nothing can access it. So Microsoft is introducing additional default rules to kind of allow list it and enable functionality. But again, it still does isolate it a little bit and help. So the article points out this is a really good step, but of course, nothing is unhackable. This is a constant game of cat and mouse. I'm sure that in the near future, we will see stories about attackers finding ways around this. So always remain vigilant. Our next story says TikTok can circumvent Apple and Google privacy protections and access full user data, according to two studies. Quoting the article, the summaries of the study suggest that TikTok is able to avoid code audits on the Apple and Google app stores. More alarmingly, the research found that TikTok is capable of changing the app's behavior as it pleases without user knowledge and utilizes device tracking that essentially gives the company and third parties an all access pass to user data. This is highly unusual and exceeds the abilities of US-based apps such as Facebook, Twitter and other social media platforms, unquote. More and more studies are coming out just like this. I don't know if we covered it, but a couple of weeks ago, I saw one that said basically TikTok is collecting data, but they're not really sure who it's going to other than the company. It's just a huge black box. It's one of the worst privacy things we've seen in a very long time. That's kind of why these stories keep coming out is TikTok is like the newcomer on the scene and we're learning more about it by the day. Our last story is another quick one. Wordle is watching you. So for those who have not heard of this, Wordle is a highly popular word guessing game. And it used to be totally tracker free. Like it didn't even have an app. It was a website that you had to go to. Well, the New York Times bought it from the original developer. It is now riddled with trackers and surveillance. I particularly wanted to include this story because this highlights why we do surveillance report. This highlights why we need a current events podcast. Things change. Things that used to be safe and private yesterday may not be tomorrow. Make sure you guys find a way to stay updated on this stuff because the privacy landscape is constantly changing. This will take us to our research section, and this week we only have one story. The headline says, Cookies. I looked at 50 well-known websites and most are gathering our data illegally. Illegally, in this case, refers to by European standards and GDPR. I'm going to quote the article. When I looked at 50 randomly chosen well-known websites, only 15, 30%, appear to comply with the EU UK data privacy laws. As many as 32, 64%, did not appear to comply with EU and cookie laws. The fact that big tech companies are not complying with cookie laws suggests that millions of citizens are likely having their personal data gathered unlawfully. It is not hard to wonder if some companies are knowingly breaching the rules because they generate so much revenue from their cookies that it is worth risking a sanction for a privacy breach." Unquote. Personal opinion, I do think that's the case. I think a lot of companies view fines and punishments as a cost of doing business. And we actually know that some companies do have funds set aside specifically for this in their legal section. This is why it's really important to use tracker blocking techniques. This is also why we are not a fan of cookies. Uh, I know it's a pain to keep signing back into something every time. We've covered a story recently, uh, a couple stories, I think, where criminals are basically able to steal the cookie that keeps you logged into a website, and then they can use that to log in themselves and just totally bypass two-factor and everything. Use uBlock, don't save cookies. With that, we will move into politics. And as usual, this is a little bit of a longer section, so bear with us. We're gonna start off with a blog post from the EFF that says, Maryland bill offers strong privacy protections against biometric data collection. So this is part news, part signal boost. 
the state of Maryland in the U.S. is considering SB 335, which requires corporations to get a Marylander's opt-in consent to collect biometrics and allow citizens to sue businesses that don't comply. If you live in Maryland, number one, they said Marylander in the article, so if that's wrong, I apologize. I was going off what the EFF told me. <laughs> number two, be sure to contact your representatives and express your support and vote in favor of this bill. Next, we will move to Texas, where the Texas Attorney General is suing Meta for their use of biometric data. This suit, brought by the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, is alleging that Meta collected biometric data on millions of Texans without their consent. Texas has a biometric data protection law that requires businesses to get consent to collect such data. Paxton is calling for Meta to pay $25,000 for each violation, plus $20,000 for each violation of the Deceptive Trade Practices Consumer Protection Act. All right, our next story is, this is one of the ones that I highlighted at the beginning because this is one of those things where for the privacy-minded listeners, and especially those who've been with, with us for a while, I know you guys agree with us. When we talk about these new technologies and we say there is massive potential for abuse, and a lot of average people don't even stop and think about that. But we're seeing abuses of a lot of these technologies. Let me just go ahead and get into it. I'm tacking two articles together here. The headline for the first one says, New Yorkers in high stop and frisk areas subject to more facial recognition tech. Quoting the article, New Yorkers who live in areas where controversial stop and frisk searches happen most frequently are also more likely to be surveilled by facial recognition technology, according to researchers by Amnesty International and other researchers. Unquote. For those who don't know, stop and frisk is basically just stopping people on the road and searching them for no real reason other than the cops think you're suspicious. Continuing to quote the article, research also shows that in the Brooklyn, Bronx, and Queens boroughs of the city, there was a direct correlation between the proportion of non-white residents and the concentration of controversial face recognition technology. Basically, the less white the neighborhood, the more facial recognition tech. Quoting, our analysis shows that the NYPD's use of facial recognition technology helps to reinforce discriminatory policing against minority communities in New York City. The research is part of the global anti-facial recognition technology campaign, Ban the Scan, which is investigating increasing use of surveillance initiatives in the New York City Police Department department. Unquote. That program, Ban the Scan, they also use thousands of volunteers to help map the CCTV cameras in New York City, and they found over 25,000 of them. The next article that I'm tacking on here says, tech firms offer cops facial recognition to ID homeless people. A tech firm is offering police the capability to identify and pull up information on people experiencing homelessness through facial recognition technology, according to a product brochure reviewed by Motherboard. The company markets the product as being a tool to use against problems such as, quote, degradation of a city's culture, this one's weird, poor hygiene, and then in parentheses, use street as a restroom, and unchecked predatory behavior, unquote. The company is called Odin, by the way. Continuing to quote the article, after using the system on a person, police would be provided with a slew of information on the individual, including the date of birth, prior contacts, labels such as needles, assaultive or registered sex offenders, warrant status, notification of who their probation officer or parole agent is, contact information for therapists or social workers, arrest history, and their temporary housing history, unquote. The app also allows police to check somebody in from the street and reserve a bed for them at a homeless shelter. This is probably gonna get a lot of people in the comments to yell at me. I understand the value of this. I understand why police want this. Generally speaking, a lot of people experiencing homelessness have, to varying extents, mental health concerns. They have addiction problems, or maybe some of them might have like schizophrenia. So I understand why police are saying, we may not always get a straight answer out of them or things like that. And why you may need to know these past information, like if they've assaulted a cop in the past when a cop has tried to talk to them. I understand that. However, 
it should go without saying, there's a lot of concern here, like the fact that facial recognition technology usually does not work so well on people of color. There's the fact that this could be used as a pretext, consciously or otherwise, to make the situation worse. If the cop uses this on somebody and they see that this person has a history of assault, the cop may get extra aggressive and defensive before the person has even done anything to warrant that, and they may end up creating their own problem. The article pointed out that we don't need facial recognition technology for the homeless people. We need stable housing and things like that. Like numerous studies have found that's the best way to tackle a homelessness problem, not to put these people on a list and criminalize them. It's to give them the help they need to integrate back into society and get treatment and get jobs and things like that. Same thing with the story about the New York City stop and frisk. Like I said at the beginning, facial recognition technology is interesting and it has valid uses. Like, I don't know, if you want to unlock your phone with your face, go for it, I guess. That's entirely up to you. The problem is that it's being subverted and abused for things like this. That's actually a good segue to our next story, which comes from San Francisco, where the San Francisco Police Department put sexual assault victim DNA into a database to find criminals. Quoting the article, the San Francisco Police Department's crime lab has been checking DNA collected from sexual assault victims to determine whether any of the victims committed a crime. The DA said his office was made aware of the purported practice last week after a woman's DNA collected years ago as part of a rape exam was used to link her to a recent property crime. Tacking on to that, this comes from the EFF. It says, not just San Francisco, police across the country are retaining and searching DNA of victims and innocent people. They go on to cite similar programs in Orange County, California, San Diego, California, which by the way, that one included juveniles who were stopped and detained until they consented to DNA collection and New York, which also included minors. There is already a huge problem in the US with women not coming forward to report sexual assaults and stuff like this isn't helping. The fact that they're just like holding on to this data and they're treating the victims as potential criminals, stuff like this is not helping. This and the facial recognition thing before that we talked about in New York. Last week, Henry talked about how privacy and democracy are like inextricably intertwined. And that is exactly what we're talking about. This kind of stuff has a chilling effect on people. We're gonna talk about this later on too in a, in a different story. When people know that this type of thing is possible, they reconsider coming forward. Everybody's trying so hard to use every piece of data to make the world a better place that I think it's actually gonna make the world a worse place because nobody's gonna wanna give up their data because it's being abused in ways they didn't consent to. Okay, moving into something that's actually good news. The New Zealand government is mandating bug reporting processes for federal agencies. Quoting the article, each agency will be responsible for creating its own policy based on the sensitivity of the information it holds, the security measures already in place, and its ability to segment its network or otherwise segregate sensitive information. Vulnerabilities should be patched, mitigated, or managed within 90 days, unquote. The article goes on to say, researchers can report vulnerabilities on a no-blame basis without fear of repercussion or penalty as long as the disclosure policy is followed and no illegal activity is undertaken. Unfortunately, there won't be any bounties to offer and agencies are expected to place limits on websites, systems, or application probing." Unquote. I feel like that's probably a little vague and it probably could have been worded better, but it's still a good start. New Zealand's federal government is saying all federal agencies now have to report bugs and patch them. And I'm assuming there will be hefty penalties for anybody who is found to be violating this and to have known about a vulnerability and not patched it. And I think that's great. Stuff like this makes everyone a little bit safer, kind of like a herd immunity thing. Our next story comes from Singapore, who is stepping up security measures in the aftermath of phishing scams. 
Quote, Singapore is stepping up security measures to bolster the local banking and communications infrastructures, which include the need for SMS service providers to check against a registry before sending through messages. Banks are also expected to develop more versatile artificial intelligence models to detect suspicious transactions. The additional safeguards come on the heels of a recent spate of SMS phishing scams, which wiped out 13.7 million uh, SG. I'm sorry, I don't know what Singapore's currency is. That's 10.17 million US dollars from the accounts of 790 OCBC bank customers, unquote. And there are more steps to come besides just that. I guess there's not much to say here. Like when I first read that headline, I was like, all right, cool, stepping up security, great. But then I saw there's like an SMS registry and AI and now I'm, I'm not so thrilled about it. I guess I just mainly wanted to share this with you guys to show that people mean well, they want better security, they want to protect customers, but they're going about it in ways that are questionable, I guess we could say, with requiring people to register phone numbers and stuff like that. Just be aware, this is the direction we're headed in and we're starting to see that roll out. That is all for politics. We will now jump into the free and open source news, FOSS News, and we're going to start with a real quick one. JMP is five years old today and now has international calls. Well, not today, but at the time they posted this blog. The title says it all. JMP, jmp.chat, I think is the website or something like that. It's a, I'm, I'm starting to see it more and more. It's basically a service that allows you to use XMP if the server supports it, to use XMP as a phone number for voice calls and SMS, which I think is really cool. It doesn't seem terribly hard to set up and it doesn't seem terribly expensive. I haven't used it myself, but I've heard a lot of people that do use it and really like it. And they are now introducing international calls. Before, I believe it was just US and Canada, and now they are expanding. So good for them. That is another private option for voice over IP to not use your SIM card phone number. Our last FOSS story, or our other FOSS story, comes from IVPN, who says WireGuard port forwarding is now enabled. Title says it all, port forwarding is what allows you to self-host things from home. If you choose not to go with an actual hosting provider like Orange website, for example, you can self-host things at home. If you do that, there are, of course, risks, you know, like your IP address being exposed. So what this is, is basically IVPN is actually personally the only one I've found, but maybe there are others that allows you to use their VPN while also port forwarding so that you can get the protection of a VPN while also still being able to self-host. And they have basically now rolled this out to WireGuard, which is a new, really popular VPN protocol. It's supposed to be lighter. It's supposed to be faster. It's supposed to be more secure. It is kind of new. So some people are still on the fence about it, but it's seeing a lot of adoption and iVPN has now enabled this capability with WireGuard. So if you're looking to self-host from your house and you still want to get some good protection, this is a good option. With that, we will jump into our misfit section and we have just one story. And unfortunately, it's not a fun one to end on. The headline says mental health helpline funded by Royals shared users conversations. There is a service called Shout and it is quote, the UK's biggest crisis text line, which gave third party researchers access to millions of messages from children and other vulnerable users, despite a promise never to do so, unquote. The FAQ used to say that they shared quote, anonymized aggregated high level data, unquote, but not the individual conversations. That promise was deleted from the FAQ last year. <laughs> Their definition of anonymization seems to include removing names and phone numbers and pretty much nothing else. So they would turn over whole conversations to researchers with nothing else redacted or looked over. The charity behind Shout, which is called Mental Health Innovations, made a greater good argument. Basically, we turn this data over because it could help 
people in these positions and future people, they're basically trying to create an AI or what the researchers are trying to create an AI that can recognize potential warning signs in somebody. And of course, some people are making arguments, in my opinion, very good arguments about meaningful consent. When you're in such a vulnerable state that you're feeling suicidal and you contact one of these lines, can you even consent? You're not in the right headspace. Can you really do that? I've mentioned in past reports that I struggle with depression and anxiety, and this really upsets me because first of all, these markers are not always accurate. Yes, there are some warning signs that somebody may be experiencing depression and suicidal thoughts, but not always. Sometimes there are no warning signs. Sometimes it's just somebody's personality. Like me, I'm a minimalist. I gave away, I think an entire Xbox one time. That should be a sign that I'm suicidal, but I wasn't suicidal. I just realized I haven't turned this thing on in like three months. Why am I lugging this around? And I gave it away to somebody. I read a lot of like Edgar Allan Poe and HP Lovecraft. And you know, that's kind of like topics of death and disturbing things, I guess. My point is these markers are not always accurate. As I mentioned earlier with the rape kits, this could discourage people from coming forward. There actually was a lady cited in the article. She used this shout service. She's like, if I had known that at the time, I'm not so sure I would have used it anyways. They're creating the exact opposite effect by discouraging people from coming forward because they don't know what's going to happen with that conversation in the future. I wish I had a better note to leave you guys on. I did see the squirrel waffle malware in the news recently, so maybe that'll come back and next week we can have a fun story to leave you guys on. That was all of our news for this report. It was a little bit lighter this week, especially after last week. Still just as much ranting though. See, I don't need Henry to go on my own rants. I can do that just fine. We talked about Google's privacy sandbox for Android, which we will of course keep you updated on. We gave you some updates on Meta and TikTok, and we will, as always, keep you guys updated on any of that we learn about. There were a ton of political stories and again we will always keep you guys updated when we hear about new laws or new uh, uses of technology that maybe have not been put through the public audit like they should be we had a couple good pieces of news from the FOSS world so again kind of a lighter week but I think it was a mix of good and bad once more, our affiliate link this week is Orange website. As I mentioned, we talked a lot about data being abused this week. And I'm gonna be honest, posting your own Nextcloud service on Orange website is probably not gonna protect you from the NYPD illegally using facial recognition, but it can protect you from other things. It can help protect you against like data breaches and depending on the context, it can protect your communications. Like you can host your own XMPP server and use JMP chat, for example. So yeah, there's a lot of options. Like I said, even if you're not real tech savvy, you can create your own domain names for email and email forwarding and stuff like that. So yeah, no matter what your tech level, there's great ways to help protect your data and take control of it if you do your own self-hosting. We want to thank you guys for listening to the surveillance report. We are happy to know that you're trying to stay safe out there. The final thing we want to ask of you, share this stuff around, share this podcast, make sure you are subscribed, give us a rating if you're listening on a platform that allows that like Apple or Spotify. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible and you can help us do that. You may have friends and family who are in San Francisco or New York or Maryland who may not know some of this stuff and they might appreciate knowing. So be sure to share it around. Thank you guys again for listening, and we will see you next week.